welcome back. If it's your first time with us, then uh, welcome. We're doing Exodus, going through the book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we've come to Exodus 32. It's a turning point in, this, in the remainder of the book. So think way back, those of you that were here in January, when we started this study, think way back when God first came to Moses, told him what he was going to do. He said, I want you to go, I'm going to bring my people out of Egypt so that they will, does anybody remember why God said he was going to bring people out of Egypt? So that they will what? Serve. So that they can, they will serve me, and the word for serve is also the word for worship. Ebed, the word for serve, the word for worship, same word. They were serving Pharaoh. God wanted to bring them out. And not just set them free and let them do what they want, but to transfer them from one master to another master. From an earthly ruler to the heavenly ruler. From one despot to the only ruler in the universe that could claim legitimate authority over the human life, which is God himself. And he did it for a reason. Not just because he didn't like slavery, although he doesn't. But he did it so that... What else would happen? Think, think back further, back into Genesis even, those of you that were here in 2014. Uh, what's been God's plan all along throughout the whole Bible that we've studied? Jesus will become part of that plan or the focal point of that plan, but how is it worded earlier? The, the, the promise that God's made all along that I always tell you, remember, I told you a half dozen times. Highlight this in your Bible. Highlight this in your Bible. The promise given to who? Abraham. Abraham. And what was the culmination of the Abrahamic promise? That I'll multiply your offspring, your seed, uh, that I'll make you into a great nation. So that was the culmination, the purpose of God doing that. So that what? I'll make you a priestly nation. That was the promise given to Israel. Yes. For the purpose of what? To all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. you. Guys, you can't lose sight of that. When you're studying the Bible, every single thing in the entire Bible is aiming towards that goal. So that in the offspring of Abraham, who is the seed of the woman, all the nations of the earth will be blessed will be brought into right relationship with God, and God will put back what went wrong in the Garden of Eden. That thread runs through the entire Bible. That's the clothesline that every single passage hangs on, is that God is, it's, it's what Chris Wright, uh, one of my favorite scholars by far, says, he calls it the mission of God. From the very beginning, God's mission is to redeem what went wrong in Genesis 3. And so this Exodus, we have to locate it within that storyline. Otherwise, we end up with a book about what God did with ancient people a long time ago for reasons that we don't even really understand. We can't do that with the Bible. There's enough people doing that with the Bible as it is. What we have to do is see the storyline, the thread, the clothesline that it all hangs on and see that God's goal his purpose and everything he's doing in Scripture is to show his mighty deeds through this particular people 
because of a promise he made 400 years earlier to their ancestor in order to fulfill a promise that he made back in the beginning for the first woman that her offspring would be the one who would crush the head of the serpent. That crushing of the head would look like all the nations returning back to knowledge of God. That would happen as people were released from bondage to sin and slavery and brought into relationship with God through the covenant. It's all fitting together. These, this is a theme that runs through the whole Bible. And so in Exodus, everything is, is it's happening. Up to chapter 31 in Exodus, it's happening. God's brought the people out. He's redeemed them. He said in chapter 6, I think, um, I, will, I will bring you out of Egypt so that you will know me. You will know that I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And that phrase, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, is all throughout the Bible in the Old Testament. And, and it's so that all the nations of the earth will see, so that you will be my instrument of judgment on this particular group called the Canaanites, because I have held off my wrath for 400 years while they have continued to fill up their iniquity. In other words, they're, 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 God had a big bucket of sin that he would allow. And once that bucket got to the top and overflowed, that's when he said, that's it. Time's up. I'm giving you 400 years. So this is all of what's going on in the story, in the meta-narrative where we are in Scripture. If we miss that, then we read Exodus 32 and we, we, we see it as um, like a temper tantrum by God, or we see it as the people just being kind of flippant and, and not really, you know, what's the big deal? They made a golden calf. Or, uh, if we take it out of what just happened before, where the people already, Moses gathered them around the base of Mount Sinai. At the base of Mount Sinai, he, they, heard, they heard the voice of the Ten Commandments. Moses didn't bring them the Ten Commandments. Remember? That's an urban legend. They heard the Ten Commandments spoken out loud by God himself. And they freaked out and they said, we don't want to hear any more Moses, you go talk to him. So what Moses went up the mountain to receive was the rest of the covenant. They had already gotten the gist of the covenant, which is the Ten Commandments. That's the beginning, the preamble, um, the, the constitution of Israel, so to speak. And then Moses goes up and gets the rest. But before he does, he tells them, and they say twice, actually three times, everything that God has commanded, we will do. As a people, they say that. Everything that God has commanded, we will do. And they're not just saying that in general. They aren't speaking general theological piety or holiness. They are specifically, and in technical language, they are agreeing to, they are signing their name on the contract, in triplicate, of a divine contract, a covenant, by a great king and a vassal. Everything that God does is all shaped around this idea of a suzerainty vassal treaty of the ancient Near East, where the suzerain, which is the ancient word for king, would make a treaty with a weaker party, the vassal. That vassal, in, in gratitude for the suzerain delivering them from their enemies, or saving them from famine, or giving them what they need to get through a hard time, whatever it is, that vassal would pledge their loyalty forever to the suzerain. They would both agree to it. They would write down, this is the stipulations. This is what you have to do as the vassal. These are the taxes you're going to pay me. This is how you're going to worship my gods, because my gods are the ones that saved you. This is how you're going to live. This is what's going to happen if you don't 
follow this. If you break this treaty, this is what's going to happen. And then they would do a ceremony. They'd take an animal and they would split it a lot of times. Not every time, but a lot of times. Split the animal, dismember the animal, cut it into pieces, let its blood pool in the middle, making a path. And both parties would walk through the middle of that path, getting the blood on their feet, symbolically saying, if I break my end of this covenant, then may what happens to this animal happen to me. That's what they were doing. In the ancient Near East, when you made a covenant, there's no verb in Hebrew for make a covenant. The verb in Hebrew is karat, cut a covenant, because it involved the cutting of an animal. And then they would take the remains of that animal, they would offer a portion to the god, or the other god, or both gods, and then they would eat the remainder as a fellowship meal together. This is all the symbolic language of what's happening in the world that Israel is in right now. So all of these overtones, all of these things are swirling around. Israel's made the binding covenant. They've agreed. They've taken the blood on them. Moses sprinkled the blood on the people. They said, all that God has commanded, we will do. They basically pledged with their lives that they will serve God and that they will keep the Ten Commandments and the rest of the covenant to come. Well, what's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. What's the second commandment? You shall not make an idol in the form of anything, graven image. You shall not carve a visualization. You shall not make a visual representation of me. It's the first two commandments. First two. And in this chapter, Israel breaks both of them at the same time. So let's read what happens here. Verse, chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses fellow who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Now, we've been reading this previous chapters for around 40 days or so. I mean, it's probably been a little bit longer than we've been reading here at Roots Christ that we've been reading these chapters. That's the time link that Moses has been gone. They saw him go up into the mountain which happened to be engulfed in flame. They saw him enter into the cloud, and that's it. And then they didn't see him for 40 days since. Now, 40 days that we've seen in biblical idiom is a round number. It just, it, it's like when we say a dozen or dozens, you know, mean a general term. So it doesn't matter if it was 39 days, 42 days, whatever. He's been going a long time, over a month. So the people, they want gods to do what? Make us gods to what? What does it say? Lead us. To, what does it literally say? To go before us. To go before us. They're camped in Mount Sinai. They've got everything they need. They've got manna every day. They've got a stream of water that flows from a cleft in the rock. They're good. Moses told them to wait. They're provided for. They want to move. They're getting impatient for whatever reason. They think we need a God to go before us, to lead us. They had the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. It led them to the mountain, and then it stayed at the mountain. They're the ones who are saying, let's go. This Moses guy is gone. You know, let's just forget everything that's happened for the past couple of months and all of the miracles and everything, and let's get on with it. Let's they keep going. To go to the land of milk and honey. <clears throat> they want to get on to the promised land. They want to go. They want to go. God's not moving fast enough for them. 
so verse 2. So they tell Aaron, you know, make us gods. And, and that, that word, make us gods, is Elohim. Um, it's the word for God. So some translations may say make us a god. The word God in Hebrew is plural. Elohim. Every time you see the word God in the Bible, you're seeing a plural word. Context determines whether it should be translated as God, capital G, plural majesty, or gods, lowercase g. So in this case, it could be either. They could say make us gods because they come from a pluralistic pagan society and they're entering into one. Or they could be saying make us this god or a god or give us something. Now what's the big deal? Why do they want it? Idolatry in the ancient world, you don't understand how it worked. The ancient people weren't stupid. This is something that people in the modern scientific age just say all the time. And, and oh, they believed all kinds of stuff back then. They weren't stupid people. They built the pyramids without calculators or cranes or heavy equipment. They were not dumb back then. They didn't think that if I carve something, it's now magically going to protect me. They had a theology whereby if you wanted something done on the earth, you had to get the gods to do it in the heavens. If you wanted to be blessed on the earth, then you had to get the gods to act in the heavenly realm in order to be blessed on the earth. And so there was, there was this, this whole system of you connected. You had to connect. Heaven and earth needed to connect. So sometimes they'd build towers, they'd build, you know, Tower of Babel, the ziggurats in the Mediterranean, whatever. It was like, I, that's why they worship in the high places. The higher you are, the closer you are to the gods, the better you can get their attention. Um, or there were, there were ways that you could create this thing called an idol, and the Hebrew word is pestle. And, uh, and it's, it's just, a, it, it didn't have any intrinsic value of its own until there was some type of ceremony or incantation or prayer that invited the God who resides in the heavens to come and somehow inhabit this idol. To, to come, it didn't mean that God became the idol, but in a, in a sense, the God connected. It was a point of connection where heaven and earth could meet. And that idol then, how you showed your appreciation to the gods in heaven or how you responded to the gods in heaven, you did that to the idol. How you treated the idol would be seen by the gods as how you would treat them if they were on the earth. So it's not just this rank magic superstition. It, it's, a, it's deeper than that. It's, it's a, it's, it taps into the spiritual hunger that everyone on earth is born with. There's a reason that atheism is a tiny, 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 tiny minority of a fraction of humanity. Because everyone throughout all time and all cultures and all points of history have always intrinsically known that there's something greater out there that there are things that work in the world beyond what we can just see, feel, and touch, and that, that somehow we can connect with that. That's just the default psyche of humanity. You have to be taught that that's not true. And so the idols, the idolatry in the ancient Near East was this widespread attempt all, all throughout the area to get the gods to be on your side, or at the very least, to not dislike you. Because the gods of the ancient Near East were indifferent to humanity. The flood story in the other cultures outside the Bible, the gods, if you guys remember, if you were back here probably about a year and a half ago when we covered that, the other flood stories, the gods flooded the earth because the people were too noisy. The gods couldn't sleep. 
the people were annoying, and they sent the flood. Um, humanity is always an afterthought in the other ancient Near East creation stories. In the biblical account, it's, it, it kind of says, drawing from those imagery and, and how they tell their stories to present the real, the actual. And so what God's doing in, in the whole previous section of Exodus that we've been in for weeks is he's been showing them, I'm going to speak into your world a way that you can understand who I am because you've come out of a place for 400 years where you've been surrounded by Egyptian pagan beliefs and you're entering into a place where they've been there for 400 years of Canaanite fertility cult pagan beliefs and that's and you're the people in between. So I'm, I'm giving you a way to relate to me because this longing that you have for connection with the gods is a real longing. The notion that you have that there is a sacredness to the God, the divine, that's real. And the idea that there's a point on earth or points on earth where the gods and, and humanity can connect, that's a real thing. And so God's entered into Israel's history and he's entered into their experience through these things. Why Jacob had his experience and he saw the tower up and the angels coming and going up and down on it and he said this is the house of God he named it Bethel and it was the idea of that this this place where I'm at is a place where the heavens and the earth are connecting and then in the New Testament in Jesus he says you'll see angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man basically taking that old image from Genesis putting it onto himself and saying I am the point where the heavens and the earth truly connect more than any of the other holy places or holy sites or anything like that so all of this is the mindset that the Israelites are dealing with and are, are succumbing to. And it's what God is trying to wrench them out of. He's trying to pull them forcibly out of this culture of paganism that's all they've ever known. Even, if, even as Israelites who worship the God of Abraham, they still were, we worship the God of Abraham, but all these other gods are who these people worship and, and, and they exist and, and you know, they've got some, something going on with them. I mean, Egypt's super powerful, so they must have been doing something right. Um, God's come and he's overthrown Egypt, but, but maybe, maybe they just weren't doing it right. Maybe they just didn't make the right kind of idol in Egypt because they had, you know, all these different idols. So maybe if we make one, Maybe that will be the way that we can worship this new God who's given us these two commandments. Even though he said don't do it, we should probably still do it because it's all we've ever known. So that's the mindset. That's what's going on behind the scenes in this. So Aaron, they go to Aaron and they tell him, they demand, make us this God or these gods. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. The verb literally is tear off cast off, just rip off. It's a hasty thing. Uh, the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughter, your earrings were, were unisex in the ancient world. You wore earrings whether you were a guy or a girl. It's, it was part of how you carried your money. I mean, your, your jewelry was part of your wealth. So it's, it's basically saying, well, give, me, give me your goods, your values. So all the people took the shape of a calf or a bull, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Or, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So Aaron asked for their jewelry. He asked for their goods. Uh, they bring it to him, and he makes it into a cow. Now, in the, in the movies and stuff, it's this huge golden bull, right? 
earrings. It's made out of earrings. It's not a huge golden bull. Okay? This was an idol. They actually, they have these from the ancient world, all over the place. The, the bull was a sacred animal in Egypt. They called him Apis, worshiped the bull. Uh, I think uh, Horus, there was a cult dedicated to Horus that worshiped the bull. In Canaan, um, Baal was seen as riding upon the bull. The bull was a sacred animal because of its fertility, because the bull was very fertile, it was very sexually virulent. Why do you think in Greek and Greco-Roman mythology, Zeus will come and impregnate a woman by turning into a bull? There was all kinds of these notes and tones of bestiality and, and fertility, and the bull was seen as just this. this we, we have a, a vestige of this in English uh, related to bulls, not relative, but whatever a horse is to a bull. They're, they're close. Um, when we say, oh, that guy's a stud, right? Well, a stud's a term for the male horse. He goes around and has sex with all the female horses to breed. Well, there was the counterpart in, in cattle raising was the bull. So it was, it was all of this, the symbolism. It was just, if you wanted to make a god, if you wanted to have a god that you could respect and that the other nations would respect, you would make a bull. So Aaron made this bull. They took the gold earrings, they take it to him. It was likely, he, he would have, first he would have carved it out of wood. It wouldn't have been out of pure gold. He carved a bull out of wood, make, you know, fasten sticks together, tie him, whatever he does. Maybe some stone, carve some stuff, but, but it would be a, a wooden structure. And then the gold would be hammered over, gold leaf, coat. So it was like a gold-plated uh, item. And so he, he does this, he crafts this for them, and he presents it to them, and then they say, this is your God, or these are your gods, this is who brought you out. And Aaron, you get the sense that he's on board, but not 100% on board, he's kind of a wishy-washy here, because then Aaron, verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the bull and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to Yahweh. See, they say these are your gods, Elohim. He says, tomorrow, festival to Yahweh. Aaron's trying to adapt this bull worship, this Canaan worship, trying to, 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 to Yahwehize it a little bit. You know, put the altar in front of it. That's kind of like what God is showing Moses up on the mountain during this time. You know, the, the Holy of Holies is where God resides and the golden ark cover. And then in front of that is the altar where the sacrifices would be made outside. So there's a little bit, you see that Aaron's trying to play both sides of the fence. So the next day the people rose early and they sacrificed burnt offerings. That's a, that's a right term, a, a theologically correct term, burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. Those are two things that God has previously commanded. So there's, they're, 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 they're kind of doing it. They're kind of worshiping God, but kind of not. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry, as the NIV says it. They got up to Isaac each other, is what the Hebrew actually says. There's that verb, Yitzhak. We've seen it all throughout Genesis. It can mean anything from have fun and play with to sexually molest and everything in between. It can mean laugh. It can mean a combination of all of that. So we don't know what their revelry involved. But given that they had just made and worshiped the bull, the symbol of fertility, they come out of Egypt into Canaan, where the way you worship was all kinds of sex acts, 
which Leviticus 18 will go through and say, this is why you can't do these things. They did them in Egypt, they do them in Canaan. Their revelry was probably not PG or PG-13. Probably not even R. This would be an NC-17 revelry, most likely. But regardless, even if what, even if it's just drinking and, and carousing and partying, um, they've still done, the last six chapters that we've read have done everything they can to instill the concept that there's holiness and then there's the common. That God is unapproachable by common humanity without some type of mediator. And that worship of God for them under this covenant will take a particular form where each and every element will be there to preserve and uphold that object lesson of God's holiness and human normalcy. And this now in this in this this pseudo-pagan celebration festival to Yahweh slash Baal that they're doing is a complete disfiguring of all of that. It's a complete disregarding and taking what God has commanded and then recasting it in, an, in their own in, or an image that they're comfortable with. And that's the heart of idolatry. It's the root of idolatry. Recasting God in an image that we're comfortable with, that we can control, that, that, that doesn't rub us the wrong way, that doesn't challenge us, that doesn't make us wait, that doesn't, you know, the gods that we want. You see it everywhere. You see it all the time. Oh, it's an election year. There are going to be Republican Jesus and Democrat Socialist Jesus everywhere you look on social media. Everybody wants Jesus on their side. Everybody wants to claim Jesus thinks like them, acts like them, has their values, and everybody else is evil. That's idolatry. That's just as much idolatry as this. It's taking a Jesus and turning him, not the Jesus revealed in Scripture, not the God of Abraham, as he's revealed himself through his written word, but as we think he should be and as we're more comfortable with. And it's been going on forever. It's, it's, it's the root, it's the core of idolatry. So afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We'll finish up here. We're going to look at the rest of it next week. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And Ibi says become corrupt. It's a reflexive verb. Have corrupted themselves. Have ruined themselves. Have done to themselves what was done to the earth before the days of the flood, that God said. Ruined and corrupted themselves. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. So God here does something just like he did with Abraham. He invites Moses to enter into a discussion or, or, or relationship with him. Because God, does, why would God say, leave me alone so I can, God doesn't need Moses' permission to do anything. The fact that he said, he's, he's speaking this out loud, he is going to invite Moses into an intercessory role. It's the same thing God did with Sodom before destroying Sodom. He went down, let me tell Abraham what I'm going to do. And he went down physically. He was actually there, him and the two angels. And they appeared to Abraham. And, and, and Abraham entered into this intercession on behalf of people who didn't deserve it. 
Now Moses is going to enter into this intercession on behalf of people who don't deserve it, on behalf of a stiff-necked people. What does that mean, being stiff-necked? Well, it's a farm term. It's an agricultural term. If somebody's got a, a loose or pliable neck, it's an animal, you can lead it this way and that way. But a stiff-necked animal is an animal that's, you know, Stiff, and you have to pull, and you're pulling against the bridle, and it's stiff neck. That's that's where that imagery comes from. It's intent on going its way, and if you try to change its path, it's going to fight you with everything in it. That's what stiff neck means, and that's what God's saying in these Israelites are. They're not allowing God to lead them. They are going to go their way, and so he, in, he enters into this uh, exchange with Moses that's going to happen, and he makes an amazing offer just then. He said, let me go down and destroy these people, and I'll make you into a great nation. In other words, God's still going to keep his promise. He's still going to do something through the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman. Moses is a descendant of Abraham. God could start over the entire nation through Moses, and it would still be faithful to his promise to bless the offspring of Abraham. But he's not going to do it that way. And Moses is going to be a major reason why. But... We're out of time. It's one, and you got to come back next week to find out the rest. So, have a great week. We've got plenty of food left. If you want some seconds and some desserts, come get it.